It's been great to worship our risen Savior already, and we want to continue that worship this morning by looking to the Word of God. So if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to continue in in the book of Ephesians, and, and I'm doing that not because we want to ignore the resurrection, but hopefully in a few minutes you'll see uh, that what we've been dealing with in terms of spiritual warfare, in particular this morning we're going to be focusing on the belt of truth that is, is given here for our armor, uh, but, but what we're going to see this morning is that the truth of the resurrection has so much to say about how we fight the schemes of Satan. So uh, read with me beginning at verse number 10. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, uh, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith in which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Here, Paul is bringing the, the letter that he's been writing to the Ephesians, he's, he's bringing it to a conclusion. And, and he does so by uh, exhorting us, kind of calling us as believers to action. In particular, he reminds us that we are in a spiritual war, that we are in, in a battle. Uh, and as, uh, as those who are in a battle, uh, we need to have the right armor. We need to have the right defense system to be able to fight in this battle. And so he draws on what would have been common in his day. And you remember that the book of Ephesians was written as Paul was in prison, uh, perhaps even chained to a guard. And so he draws on the analogy of the kind of, uh, the, the kind of armor that, that a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier might wear. He talks about a helmet and a shield and uh, the kind of shoes that they would wear and, and a sword. Uh, but he begins by telling us to take up the belt of truth. We need to remember then, believers, if you're here this morning and you're, you're a Christian, you need to be reminded once again about the seriousness, seriousness of this. You are in a spiritual battle. You need to remember that this is a spiritual battle. This is not a flesh and blood kind of battle. Remember when Jesus was taken by Pilate to be arrested and Jesus was asking him, uh, or the Pilate was asking and questioning Jesus, saying, they're saying that you're the king of the Jews. Are, are you a king? Do you have a kingdom? And, and Jesus says, well, you've said that, but, but he, he qualifies that by, by telling Herod that my kingdom is not of this world. It's not a fleshly kingdom. It's not a kingdom like the Roman kingdom. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my followers fight. So, so the battle that we're in is not a physical battle. We don't fight 
with, with flesh and blood. We don't, we don't fight against flesh and blood. We don't fight with swords and guns and, and these kinds of, of weapons. It is a spiritual battle, and we have a spiritual enemy who is the devil. We see this in verse 11, uh, that, that the devil and his forces, his demons, are those against whom we are fighting. And, and Satan, this spiritual enemy that we have, he has schemes that he is working against us to seek to destroy our faith. Well, we mentioned this last week, but I just want to mention it again. I, I think most Christians tend not to think about the devil in, in right ways. I think there, there are two kind of errors that we can make on, on both sides, two ditches that, that we can fall into. First of all, some, a few probably, but, but some do te- seem to exaggerate and distort the work of of Satan. Uh, for some, demons are behind everything. Satan's involved in, in, in everything. And, and, and others, Satan is, is a very real factor, but they're thinking of Satan in terms of, you know, making people's heads spin backwards and all kinds of weird things. It's, it's the very, very strange and kind of out there uh, view of, of Satan. One person said this, though, uh, David Pallison said, the Bible never makes the evil one the primary actor. We should realize and recognize that Satan is at work, but but we should never make him the primary actor. And Scripture does not bring him in only when something unusually strange or evil is going on. The real devil is utterly normal, and his role is fully integrated into daily life. Mundane evil is is the devil's business. And so we don't need to exaggerate the work of of Satan. We don't need to distort it as if it's just the that which is very out there and strange and kind of on the fringe. Mundane, I like what he says there, mundane evil is the devil's business. The, the devil's not so interested in haunting houses and, and making people do really, really out there kind of things. The devil's more interested in just getting you to sin and getting you to, to, to weaken your faith and to disobey the Lord. So, so that's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum uh, is that most Christians just tend to ignore Satan. They, they live their daily life without any kind of consideration of the fact that they have an enemy who is opposing them on a daily basis. They go about day after day thinking that it's just me and I'm here and what I, what I can see is all I've got to worry about. There's no recognition that what Paul is saying here is true, that we have a spiritual enemy who's opposing us and that he has schemes that he is working against us. He has plans in which he is seeking to destroy us. You know, when you look to the Bible, one of the things that we see is that, is that the devil is always actively opposing God's people at every crucial step of redemptive history, from the Garden of Eden all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Satan is at work opposing God's people. And we saw last week that Satan has a strategy. There's a way that Satan works, and that strategy is based in deception. Jesus said of Satan that that he's the father of lies and that there is no truth in him. What that means, the the fact that there's no truth in him, just stop and think about that, that everything Satan does, everything he does is based on a lie, is based on deception. 
If he's going to work in your life either to, to tempt you to sin or, or accuse you, temptation and accusation, the, the two main forms of, of Satan's attack, it's always going to be based on a lie because Jesus said there is no truth in him. Everything that he does is, is a lie. Further, the world around us, the world around us is deceived by Satan. This only compounds the problem. It only makes it more difficult because you look around and you think, can all of these people be wrong? Can they all be deceived? All of them seem to be following this way, which is against the Lord. It's against his word. Can all of them be wrong? But that's precisely what the Bible tells us about the world. Ephesians 2 says of the world of which we were once a part before we were saved. Uh, he says that, that they were following, they were following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is at work in the world around us, and they're, they're following this course. They're, they're following him. 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul says uh, about people who reject the gospel, that, that they reject it because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So they're deceived and they are blinded. And one of the clearest passages, the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Well, you and I, if you're a believer here this morning, if you're a Christian, God has set you free from that darkness. He has broken the power of deception that Satan held over you. You no longer are following the prince of the power of the air, the, the, the gospel, and Christ has come in and shined the light of, of the glory of God into your heart so that you're no longer in darkness. You are no longer under the power of the evil one. We've been set, true, uh, set free by, by the truth. Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. We've been delivered, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness. And so we've been set free. If you're a Christian this morning, you are no longer under the power of Satan's deception. But what you need to be aware of is that Satan doesn't just say, well, they're okay. You know, they're a believer now. They're a Christian. They've, they've been set free. Uh, he, he doesn't just let it go. He, he's not con uh, content to simply concede that we now belong to the Lord. Uh, in fact, in some senses, he begins to double his effort against us. As long as we're under his sway and going according to the course of the world and, and we're walking in darkness, he, he really doesn't have much reason to oppose us. We're doing what he already wants us to do. But the moment we're freed from that darkness, the moment we be, believe in Christ, the moment we try to live by the truth, the work of Satan comes against us. Satan's aim this morning for you. You're a believer here this morning. You have an enemy. He's got schemes. He's working against you. And do you know what his aim is? What, is? what is his goal? His goal is to destroy your faith or at least weaken your faith so that you are ineffective. That's what he's seeking to do. Here's something we need to understand. Satan wants to weaken our faith. You know, sometimes as Christians, I think we, we think of faith in terms of either you got it or you don't. You either have faith or you don't. But, but do you realize that the Bible teaches that there are, there are sort of levels of faith or strength of, of your faith? So, so Jesus or, or the Bible talks about faith that is great and faith that is small. 
He talks about uh, to the disciples. What does he tell them? O ye of little faith. They had faith, but it was little faith. In Luke chapter 17, the apostles pray to Jesus or ask Jesus a question. They ask Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. We, we have faith in you, but, but it's small. It's, it's a weak faith. We want you to increase our faith. The man that came to Jesus, uh, Jesus said, look, and he wanted uh, Jesus to heal his son. And he, Jesus says, if you believe, I, I can heal your son. And, and the man says, I believe, but help my unbelief. So the Bible even presents us as, as sort of being able to have belief and unbelief at the same time or, or a weak kind of faith. Paul prayed in Ephesians that, that the believers uh, in Ephesus, that the minds of their, or the eye of their heart uh, would, would uh, see, would be enlightened. What is he praying for there? He's praying that, that they may see something in a very real way. Your, your heart doesn't have an eye. He's saying... Would your faith be strengthened that, so that you can see the things that I'm talking about really are true? Now, here's the important part. Our ability, our ability to effectively live out the Christian life is directly proportional to our level or strength of faith. Whatever way you want to think about it, level or strength. Uh, our ability to live out the commands of Scripture, to be faithful to follow Christ, is directly proportional to the level of faith that we have. So when Satan is opposing you, uh, he doesn't have to destroy your faith altogether. In fact, he may be aware of the fact that he's not able to do that ultimately. But what he does, all he does have to do is get you to doubt the truth of God's word. If he can get enough doubt in your heart, he can make you ineffective. He can keep you from doing the things that you ought to do. Satan doesn't have to get you to reject the Bible or stop believing in Christ. But he can speak words of doubt into your soul that resonate with you. And when you begin to listen to those doubts and give them room in your heart and mind, you will no longer live for the Lord with any kind of zeal or vigor. Your Christian life will be stagnant, weak, and ineffective. Let me give you an illustration this morning. If I were to come in to here this morning, and some of you don't know me that well, but some of you know me well enough to know that I like to joke and cut up. If I came in this morning and said, hey, the building's on fire, some of you would run out because you believe me. Jared and, and probably Daniel, a few others, they'd be like, yeah, whatever, right? Because they don't believe the words that I'm saying, right? Our, our action, the, the response to what somebody says is directly tied to whether you believe it or not. If you really believe that I'm serious, that this building is on fire, you're going to run out that door. And, and if you have faith, and it's a strong faith, you're going to respond to the words of Christ. You're going to be obedient. This is the problem with, with so many Christians. It's not that they have no faith, although there are some people who profess faith that have no faith. But, but the reality is, for so many of us, Satan has spoken words of doubt into our heart so much, and we begin to latch on to them, that, that we simply are doubting really the truth of God's word. And it leads us to an, an, an ineffective Christian life. It, it, it leads us to inaction. We don't follow the Lord as we ought. And the reason we're not following him as we ought is because we're not believing him as we ought. That's what Satan's doing in your life. He's not making people's heads spin around. Uh, he, he's not doing weird, bizarre things 
in, in third world countries. He might be, but, but his, main, his main purpose is to get you to doubt the word of God that he might make you an ineffective follower of Christ. So I want us to consider this morning, of course we see what is the answer to this. The answer is that we got to put on the belt of truth. You're imagining this soldier, this Roman centurion, and Paul says, just imagine this belt that he wears that holds everything together. It's what ties his armor together, where he holds his sword. This is the belt of truth. If you're going to fight Satan this morning... Uh, and be able to stand against his lies and, and, and his work to cause you doubt in your Christian life, then you need the truth of God's word. This morning, what I want us to do with the time that remains is I want us to consider some of the lies and some of the doubts that Satan tries to sow in our hearts. And then I want us to see how the resurrection counteracts those lies. So what I'm doing this morning with the truth of the resurrection is actually something you could do with any truth in God's word. You see, when Satan comes and speaks lies into your life, the way that you need to fight that is with the truth of God's word. And what I want us to see this morning is that the resurrection is one of those foundational truths uh, th- that really should work to counteract so many of Satan's lies that, that he tells us. So lie number one, and we'll try to go through these in, in a timely fashion. Lie number one is this, that God's word cannot be trusted. The Bible and the claims of Christianity are not true. There are errors errors in the Bible, and that means you can't put your hope in its message. Jesus must not truly be the Son of God come in the flesh. Well, we know the impact of this lie. Obviously, as we've already said, if you're a Christian this morning, you're never going to fully accept that lie. Uh, but, But what can work... Uh, on you is that is that you hear those things enough that it that it causes doubt in your heart is this really all true is God's word really true I I believe it but man I've got doubt and what does that do It, it tends to to leave you in a place of inaction you're not really sold out for the Lord. You're not really living a life dedicated to the Lord because in the back of your mind or in the depths of your soul you're really questioning is this all really true. Let me just give you a case in point, an illustration. Do you believe in hell? Do you believe in hell? Do you believe in the internal punishment of those who reject Christ? The Bible clearly teaches it. I think there's no doubt if you take the Bible at its word that that this is something that's clearly taught and Christ himself talks much about hell. Do you believe in that? And if you do believe in it, how can we be so lax in in the kind of evangelism that we do? How can we not be pleading with our family? How can we not be pleading with our neighbors and say, come to Christ, know Christ. No, we say things like, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm just too nervous about talking to people. I'm just not an outgoing person. No, no, no. You said you believed in the eternal punishment of those who reject Christ and you're going to allow a little nervousness to keep you from sharing the message of hope that could deliver them from that fate? You see... Our lack of faith in that is really what drives our lack of evangelism. If you were able to see people stepping out of this life into eternity and see them falling into hell, if you were able to see that with your own eyes, I think, I think you would get over your nervousness. I think you would get over your fear of rejection and you would be one of the greatest evangelists to ever live. But the reason we're not, right, is there's a, there's a level of doubt in our heart. And that's all Satan has to do. 
You say, well, yeah, I, I think I do believe in hell. But, but it's a weak kind of faith. It's, it's a weak acceptance of that. The, the stronger your faith, the stronger your action. I think you get, get the point. And that's the, the strategy that, that Satan uses. And so what he does with Christians is, is come and say, look, you know, this can't all be true. There are errors in the Bible. And, and it leads us to this place of inaction. Well, how does the resurrection help us count, counteract that? How can we fight against that lie, uh, 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 against uh, this tactic of, of Satan? Well, when I doubt, and can we just all be honest that we doubt sometimes that we have struggles? Can, can, can we be real this morning that, that all of us at times sit back and say, can this all be real? Can this all be true? Or maybe you're reading the Bible and you're reading something. It's like, wow, that's really hard to accept. And then Satan comes in. Yeah, that's because it's not true. No way that could be true. No way God would do that. No way God would command people to do that. No way you're getting all those animals on the ark, right? No way that the sun can stand still. That just cannot happen. And so those moments of doubt, and, and when we have those moments of doubt, I'll just give you my strategy. Here, here's what I like to do. It's kind of like golf. When you, when you play golf, I'm not good at it at all. I just have to make that statement. But one thing I do know, although I probably don't even do it properly, is that when you walk up to the ball, you have to address the ball properly. You've got to be in the right stance. You've got to be pointed in the right direction. You have to be the right distance away from the ball. The, the way that you address the ball, the way that you come to the ball is, is very important as far as your swing and hitting it in the right direction. All right, which clearly, again, I've, I've got a long way to go with that. That's what I like to think of in terms of, of these kind of doubts. When, when I begin to doubt, when I'm reading something in, in the Bible, and I'm just saying that's, that's really challenging for me to accept. That, uh, what I find a lot of times is that I'm not addressing it from a place of faith. So, so what I like to do is step back and make sure I'm coming at this from the right direction. And one of the things I like to do is go to the, 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 the truths of Scripture that I think are just the foundational kind of bedrock truths that... that that Christ has, has convinced me of, that, that I know to be absolutely certain. And one of those is the resurrection. One of those is the resurrection. When you think about the resurrection, and we're not going to go into an apologetic and, and try to defend the, the historicity of the resurrection, but I will just say this. There's as much evidence for, for the historicity of, of the resurrection as almost any other historical event. Like if you believe in Plato and Aristotle, if you believe that, that Homer wrote the Iliad, if you believe that George Washington was our president, th then I can tell you this, there's as much evidence for those kinds of things as there is for the resurrection. Or let me say that the other way around. There's as much evidence for the resurrection as there is for those kinds of things. Ultimately, we accept it by faith and, and based on the word of God. But, but what we need to see is, is that this is a foundational truth for us. So when I begin to doubt things like the sun standing still, or I, I begin to read things that are a struggle for me to accept, I come back to this and I say, I'm going to trust my life to the risen Savior. Jesus has resurrected. I'm absolutely confident of that. I know that to be true. And if Jesus is, is, has resurrected, then I'm going to trust what he says. And guess what? Jesus trusted the Old Testament. Jesus held the Old Testament as an authority. He said that the scripture could not be broken. If Christ has been raised, uh, then we can combat that 
lie of Satan. The second lie is this, that God could never love me or forgive me. God could never love me or forgive me. This is the lie that says there's no way that God could love me. God must be angry with me after all I've, I've done, all the ways that I've fallen short. Uh, if God knows half the things that I've done, then there, there's no way he could love me. God knows how often I've fallen into sin and how often I, I, I act like a, just a complete hypocrite. He, he couldn't accept me. There's no way he could love me. That's one of the accusations that Satan brings against. And, and, and listen, the impact on that, uh, of that lie on many people's lives is, is great. Uh, many people are ineffective in their Christian life because they, in part, have believed that lie. They, they doubt God's ability to completely forgive them. And oftentimes, the, the strange thing is, and I think it's the tactic of Satan, them believing that they're so bad that God could never forgive them actually works to keep them in their sin. It does this in, in a couple ways. It, it does this in terms of sins of commission, things that we do that we know are wrong. People say things like, you know, I shouldn't do this, but I'm already such a lousy person. I've already messed up so many times. There's no way God could forgive me. God could not love me. I've, I've messed up so many times in the past. What does it matter if I continue to live in this sin? I've looked at pornography so many times before in the past. What, what does this time matter? God, God couldn't love me anyway. I've been divorced, and, and I know that God didn't want me to do that, so what big deal is it if I, if I commit fornication now? God, God couldn't love me anyway. God must be angry with me for the way I failed yesterday, so I really shouldn't even try to live for Him today. And then not only sins of commission, but sometimes sins of omission. I know I should be doing this, but I can't because of what I've done in the past. I can't evangelize. I can't share my faith with people because they know how big of a sinner I am. They would think I'm a big hypocrite. If I go in talking about Jesus now after what they've seen me do and all my anger and the wrong things I've done, I start talking about Jesus, they're going to think I'm a hypocrite. You see how Satan just, he, he works to, to make you inactive and ineffective? I can't obey what Christ tells me to do because, uh, because of this past sin. I can't lead my children now. They're teenagers, and they know I've, I've never done it before. They, they wouldn't even take me seriously. They, they know I've never lived out my faith. When you fall into sin, Satan wants you to stay down. He wants you to stay down, and he does it by getting you to feel worthless and to despair that God could ever love you and forgive you. But here's the truth. The truth is this. For those who have faith in Jesus Christ... You are completely loved, forgiven, and accepted by God. And it doesn't fluctuate. You're not more accepted by God today because you're doing a little bit better. You're at church and you've dressed up, you're here on Easter, so you're a little more loved and accepted and forgiven by God today than you were yesterday when you were struggling with sin and yelling at your wife and, and not taking good care of your kids and all of that stuff, right? You're not more loved and accepted by God today when, when you're doing what God wants you to do than you were yesterday. And you're not going to be less accepted by Him tomorrow when you fall into sin. The, re, the, the resurrection declares this in, in Romans 4.25. It says that, that Christ was raised 
for our justification. Do you understand what that means? That means that for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, uh, when, when Jesus was raised from the dead, that was the stamp of God's approval that, that what Christ did in dying for you has been fully accepted. It's, it's the paid in full stamp. So, so what does God think about you? Does God love you? Has God forgiven you? Does, does God count you as being righteous? Yes, he does. How do we know? I, I've, I've messed up so many times. I've fallen so many times. How can I know that God could love me? Because he raised Christ from the dead. And that was his statement on his love and acceptance and approval of you. The re resurrection is a divine receipt, a paid in full declaration on the cross. You know, one of the most liberating things that can happen to a Christian is to come to terms with, with this truth. I, I feel like so many Christians, they know they're saved by grace, but, but they continue to struggle with this. They, they continue to feel worthless, and, and Satan just plays you like a fiddle because he tempts you to sin, and then when he sins, he tells you how worthless you are and how you might as well just keep on sinning and how you could never serve and do anything effective for the Lord because of your sin. He plays you like a fiddle. And one of the things that will deliver you from that is the realization that because I've been justified, because I've been declared righteous and Christ has been raised, that means that no matter what I've done, Listen, do you really believe this in your heart and soul this morning? That no matter what you do yesterday, what you did yesterday, what you do today, what you do tomorrow, that because of Christ you're loved, forgiven, and accepted by God, that will radically liberate you. This is, what, this is the way it works in my life. I stumble in sin, and there was a time where I would just feel so bad about myself, and I just, oh, I can't, man... There's been times I've been sitting on that pew thinking, man, I can't believe I've got, I've got to preach. Well, I've got to preach because I'm, I'm getting paid. And if nobody preaches, they're going to start asking questions. But, but I don't feel like I'm worthy to preach. I don't feel like I can stand up and proclaim God's word. If people knew the sin that I struggle with, they would realize how big of a hypocrite I am. And, and, and that will greatly hinder the way that you serve the Lord. But when you can say this, I don't want to sin that grace may abound. I, I don't want to just act like my sin's no big deal. But, but this is true. I'm, I'm just as loved and accepted by God after I've committed that sin as I was before. On my greatest day and on my worst day, there's no change. We've been justified. We've been declared righteous through Christ. The resurrection declares that to us. Now, here's the third lie this morning. And Jared mentioned this, and I don't know if he saw the notes on, on the back, but uh, perhaps the Lord has just led us in, in this same direction. The third lie is this. My physical pain, my sickness and disease and depression means that God doesn't really care about me. My physical pain, whether it's sickness, disease, depression, means that God doesn't really care care about me how how could God care about me this is the lie of Satan that, that he will tell you how could God really care about me and yet let my body suffer can God really care for me and let me have cancer can God care for me and let me have MS or Parkinson's or depression or you just fill in the blank could God care for me and let me struggle with these things does God really even care about me to make matters worse, some Christians come along 
And, and they try to comfort us, but they're, they're well-meaning, but they're uninformed. And they say things like, well, it doesn't really matter, you know, that you're going through this. Not that they would say it doesn't matter, but, but look, the, the reality is uh, that, that your, your soul is going to heaven, and your soul is really all that matters, you know? God, God's just worried about your soul. He's, he's going to throw your body away like a, a styrofoam cup. This is a, there's something of a, a misunderstanding with, with so many Christians. Listen, the Bible does teach that we're body and soul. At death, our, our, our soul does go to be with the Lord, and it's separated temporarily from, from our body. But what we need to understand is that death is not natural. That's not part of God's plan. That's, that's not nor, normal. Death is caused by sin. And so the separation of body and soul is not natural. It's not by design. And it is not good. But sometimes Christians can talk about death as if it's no big deal. We just act as if the body were disposable. We're just going to be thro- throw it away and be done with it. But that is not the way it's supposed to be. And the person who's experiencing physical pain and, and disease, which is really the, just the process of death working itself out, they understand that. They understand that what Christians sometimes are saying about this body doesn't matter. They understand that's not true. The person who's facing disease and death knows that's not true. We inherently understand that our bodies do matter. Your body matters. It's not right. We we know that this isn't right because we cannot separate our existence from our physical body. Listen, if it's happening to your physical body, it's happening to you. You are your body. You're more than your body. You have a body and soul, but but you're not less than it. Your body is you. And if it's happening to your body, it's happening to you. It's also not right because we know that we are only complete beings when there is both body and soul. Disease and death threaten that existence. And we know it. And so when Christians come along and say, your body, no big deal. We're just going to put you in the ground and, and throw some dirt on you. Your body doesn't matter. We're like, no, that's not right. And, and it's not. Listen, this morning, what you need to know is that, that God cares about your body. If you're here this morning and you're suffering pain and dealing with the psychological effects of having a major illness or disease, it's a big deal to God. It matters to Him. It's not natural. It's not good that your bodies are undergoing the process of death. I like to think of Jesus as He's standing by the tomb of Lazarus. What does Jesus do? Jesus weeps. At death, why does he weep at the death of Lazarus? He knew what was going to happen. He knew what he was doing. He wept because he understood this is not right. This is not the plan of God. God created us, and when he did, he created us both body and soul. That's the ideal. That's what we should be. That's what makes up a complete being. When we face physical suffering, Satan can play on that fear. By telling us that because God has allowed you to suffer these physical problems, he doesn't care about you. Because we're so tied to our physical body, it can be a convincing lie. I've talked to so many, and Jared mentioned, we have so many people right now struggling with different illnesses. And and, and the temptation for all of them is to believe God has forsaken me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. How could he love me and, and allow me to go through this? Satan will tell you things. God's God's just going to let your body wither and decay. God's going to let the cells in your body grow abnormally. 
He's going to allow your brain to misfire so that you lose control of your limbs and other body functions. He's going to let your heart stop beating. And on top of that, then he sends Christians to tell you, oh, it's no big deal. It's just all about your soul anyway. The truth is this. That's the lie. The truth is this this morning. The resurrection shows us that God cares immensely about our whole being, all of us, body and soul. You need to understand this morning, when God saved you, when he redeemed you, he purchased you, he did not just purchase your soul. He purchased you both body and soul. You remember the passage in, in 1 Corinthians, which isn't directly related to this, but we see the point. He says, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you've been bought with a price, therefore what? Glorify God in your body. What does it matter what I do in my body? Because my soul is all that's been redeemed. No, no, no. You've been redeemed, both body and soul. And so you belong to Christ. Not just your, your soul doesn't just belong to Christ. Your body belongs to Christ. He's redeemed it. And so you ought to glorify God in your body. I like when we went through the Heidelberg Catechism. I, I love the, the way that this is stated. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I, that's the question. What's your comfort in life and death? That I, not, I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus died to redeem your body. It belongs to him. And he cares deeply about your physical body. The resurrection is proof that God cares about your body. The resurrection is the bringing forth, the, the reforming of our bodies from the earth, the glorifying of them, and the re reuniting of them with our souls. Do you understand this this morning, that your salvation is not complete? Sometimes we talk about, oh, it, it'll be so wonderful when I go to heaven, when I die, and I'll be with the Lord. And that is so true. We, to be, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And it will be a wonderful thing, and it will be far better than being in this sinful, broken world. But, but the, our salvation, listen this morning, our salvation is not complete just when our soul goes to heaven. Our salvation is only complete at the, as, at the resurrection when God calls forth our body, reforms it, glorifies it, and our soul is reunited to our body. That's the final state that we will find ourselves in, and that is what we are longing for. Paul said, I don't want to, I, I want to be in heaven, but, but my aim is just not to be unclothed. That is my soul without my body. I want to be clothed upon. I, I want my resurrection body. That was Paul's aim and his goal, what he longed for. Our salvation is complete when our body is resurrected and made perfect. So Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, now here's the important words, the same person who raised Jesus from the dead bodily, they, Jesus' body was raised from the dead, will also give life, to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, the pattern of Christ's resurrection is what we're going to experience. His, his soul, the spirit was separated from his body. They placed his body in the tomb. But three days later, 
the tomb was rolled away, the stone was rolled away, and Jesus came out both body and soul. You see, the resurrection wasn't just Jesus showing up as a spirit, appearing as a ghost to to the disciples. No, Jesus came in his body. The scars were in his hand. It was a glorified, it was a body that had been made new. The, The effects of the curse and sin had been removed from it, but it was his body. And he ate with the disciples. He ate fish and he walked with them on the seashore and he sat with them and he ascended into heaven in a physical body. And that's our hope this morning. God cares about your body and God has done something to redeem and restore your body. God God is not just going to throw your body away and say, well, you got cancer and you've got uh, Parkinson's and you've got depression. Let's just get rid of that and just throw it away. No, God is going to call it forth from the grave and He's going to make it new and He's going to restore it in in a perfect way. There'll be no cancer. There'll be no depression. There'll be no Parkinson's or MS or anything else. God will make it perfect. God is redeeming you both body and soul. And Satan wants you to think that because you've got these physical ailments, then God must have forgotten you. But no, God has already done everything necessary to redeem and to restore your your broken body. God cares very deeply about that. It will be a, a, a spiritual body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that it, it, it will be sown, it's perishable, but what is raised will be imperishable. So our physical body could die before, but this body will be imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. One day... Jesus, just like he called to Lazarus, Lazarus come forth one day, John chapter 5 verse 28 says that all those who know him will hear his voice and will come out of the grave. That's our hope. Our hope is the resurrection. God cares about your body. What we've seen this morning, I think, I hope that you've seen this, is that the truth of God's word is what we need. We need to fight against Satan. And Satan is constantly telling us lies. He's constantly implying things. He's constantly working in our life to try to get us to doubt the truth of God's word. And what we need to do is put on the belt of truth. We need to come back to God's word again and again and again. And let the the truth of God's word stand and, and help us defend these lies of Satan. Let's pray this morning. Our our Lord, we come to you this morning. We're thankful, Lord, for the resurrection. We're thankful that it gives us certainty about our faith. We're thankful this morning uh, that it lets us know that we are completely loved and accepted by you. We're thankful this morning in the midst of all of the disease and suffering, the physical ailments that we see around us, that we know you do care about us. You care not only about our souls, but about our bodies. Lord, we long for the day of that resurrection. And we pray uh, with John, we, we would pray, Lord, come quickly. Lord, we pray for the resurrection. In Christ's name we pray, amen.